Welcome to the podcast of Woman Otolaryngologists, or POWER. I'm Pratushi Alamanchi. My co-host Janice Farlow and I are otolaryngology head and neck surgery residents at the University of Michigan. Our POWER podcast is focused on equipping early career women, specifically otolaryngology junior faculty and residents like ourselves, with critical non-medical skills and knowledge for successful, fulfilling careers. We're looking to find and deliver pragmatic advice while engaging a geographically disparate community of otolaryngology women. We're so thrilled to share our inaugural episode, Women in Otolaryngology, Past and Present, with you today. Joining us is internationally recognized head and neck cancer surgeon, leader in academic medicine, and role model to us both, Dr. Carol Bradford. Dr. Bradford is the current Dean of the Ohio State University College of Medicine. She completed her head and neck surgery residency at the University of Michigan before joining our faculty in 1992 and became department chair in 2009. She became executive vice dean for academic affairs in 2016. She's published more than 300 peer-reviewed articles and contributed to over 20 book chapters. Dr. Bradford was elected as the first woman president of the American Head and Neck Society in 2012, has served as president of the Society of University Otolaryngologists, and in 2020, she became president of the Academy for a one-year term. We couldn't think of anyone better to join us today. So to start us off, Dr. Bradford, how have you seen the field of otolaryngology change over the course of your career? So thank you for that amazing question. And it's been really kind of an amazing and and wonderful uh, journey in many respects. Uh, The face of olaryngology looked very, very different when I began. There were very few women uh, in olaryngology uh, when I joined the residency training program. And in fact, as a student at the University of Michigan, my clinical advisor in the day really said, you know, I'm not sure that they actually take women into laryngology. And so I was sort of prepared uh, not to be successful, but there had been some, I was not the first female in the training program. And, but I, when I did join, um, uh, formally join, you know, the residency training program, there were um, no other women residents. And then when I joined the faculty in 1992, there were no other female faculty. I was the only one uh, at that point. Um, So the face of otolaryngology, I think, has changed uh, remarkably. I think that there is greater gender balance in the field, but I still think the specialty has huge inroads uh, to make in all forms of diversity uh, and in growing the population or the proportion of underrepresented minorities in the field of otolaryngology. And I think with the ultimate goal, both nationally and globally, is that we should mirror or reflect the communities that we serve as otolaryngologists. And I think that for all of medicine, I think that for healthcare professions is that we we should mirror the, the communities and populations uh, we serve. But there was not tremendous diversity when I started. I think that out of the gate, I uh, through the leadership of uh, the then chair and one of my career role models and mentor, mentors, Chuck Krause, 
he early on, as far back as I can remember, had a diversity committee. So he early on was uh, very welcoming and opening, open to having a uh, uh, supporting my career throughout. And I had fabulous mentors, role models, and coaches throughout my career, but largely they were men because uh, there just were not a lot of women ahead of me. There were some, just not very, there were, there were none really uh, in, in, in O'Laryngology at Michigan. But now that's changed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel like during your training that being the only woman trainee was, was it something of significance? It's a great question. And I think I, I think I assimilated to the culture very well. And then eventually there were women that, you know, did follow behind me. Um, You know, um, it's obvious that I probably missed the conversations that happened in the locker room. But that's okay. Uh, I wasn't bothered or concerned about that. I really do believe that I I was uh, accepted uh, as a as as one of the residents and uh, supported by the faculty, the co-residents, who again, you you know how close the resident cohorts uh, were. I was motivated uh, to study and and read by the co-residents. But no, I think. I think I, I, I was lucky in that I was, you know, the OR crew, the clinic crew. Yeah, I was, I, I had no, no issues. I was just, uh, just another resident, which is, which is good, how it should be. As we look to make our residency even more diverse, and it is very diverse now, I think um, something that medical students have expressed is that if they're underrepresented in some way, that there's a fear of being like the token person of that identity. So it's nice when you can be identified as just another co-resident. Right. And I I can tell you there were moments in my career where I was the female candidate. I think some know that I, as I went on in my journey, and we'll probably talk more about it, I aspired to be a chair of an O'Laryngology program and to lead uh, and that was never about me, but it was always about making a difference. But I can tell you that I did, you know, submit my name and you know, CV to a number of chair opportunities. And, and I, you know, there were tremendous other candidates um, that um, were ultimately picked. But, but I do think it was, there were moments in my career where it was important to have a diverse candidate pool and the Carol Bradford on the ticket was that. Well, you've already spoken to how you were the only female in many rooms. Um, and thankfully, because of the work that you've done and the work of others, the, we all now know that medical student bodies are much more diverse. The residency uh, here at Michigan and elsewhere in otolaryngology is much more diverse. Uh, but as you move up the food chain, as you will, it certainly becomes less and less so. What would you say to the young women out there who, just like you, aspire to some of these executive roles um, and they worry that they're just the token uh, female candidate for for a table full of men? So pursue your dreams, train yourself. Uh, I became very much an, an avid 
reader of uh, leadership books. I, I, I availed myself of leadership development opportunities, whether it was the Healthcare Leadership Institute at the University of Michigan, uh, ELAM, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine, uh, executive coaching. So I really did learn, like, like all things in life, we need to learn about leadership, learn about uh, yourself, uh, learn about emotional intelligence. So I've been really an avid um, consumer of, of improving myself in the leadership realm. But I think that, you know, I think that if that is your career goal, you should have that, like all things, plan, have, you know, take on incremental uh, leadership roles that, you know, um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole even culture of that. Um, when I was vice president of the American Head and Neck Society, I had the opportunity to put people on committees. So then everybody that wanted to be on a committee told me, but I'd never known until that moment that that's what people did. I had no idea that people were nominating themselves for committee roles and assignments. And again, that was, again, one of many, many, many light bulb moments in my career that um, in ELAM, they refer to it as graceful self-promotion. We need to put ourselves forward. We need to do those things. You can't have no leadership roles and then be chair of a department or dean of a medical school. You have to actually have incremental leadership opportunities to actually sort of hone your leadership skill set. And so for me, that was, I was informally the program director. I was earlier on the medical student director. I was chief at the VA uh, out of the gate. I was division chief. I was co-director of the head and neck cancer program, uh, associate chair for clinical programs and education. And each one of those roles really did um, foster in me um, you know, leadership skill development. And I also, you know, I also think it's really important to get um, uh, feedback about how, how you're doing as a leader um, through 360s or informal. Uh, and, you know, you always want to ask people, you know, for their honest uh, input so that you can continue to grow as a leader. You know, there is a leaky pipeline, and so you have to stay in the game. Some days and weeks, it's easy and fun, and some days and weeks, it's not easy and it's not fun. And you just don't know which days those are, but, you know, when you're pursuing a dream, you have to keep your eye on, on the long haul, not, not today or tomorrow, you know. You have hard days, you have tough call nights, you have tough cases, you have tough people interactions, but I think as long as you always commit to growing and doing better, um, and then just seek advice from others, you know, let, let people mentor you and coach you. And if you need mentorship, coaching and advice, you know, reach out and ask people to play those roles for you. And people, again, and have been remarkably generous in giving of their time, energy, me, my entire career. And I'm very, very grateful. Something called microaggressions that we wanted you to maybe speak about, um, because 
while it's one thing to face a, a patient complication, it's another when somebody questions your role or your identity. Okay. And um, that's obviously happened at least once in your career. So we would really value your thoughts and insights about how to how to tackle that, how to address someone who maybe intentionally or unintentionally uh, questions your your place in the operating room. So that's a great question. And and I believe, I think that there are, um, there is a difference between how I perhaps survived than what I would uh, recommend you do now. Um, and that is, I probably knew, I, I'm not sure I recognize microaggressions, which is this crazy thing, because I think that you just as one of the few, and I'm not, I'm not recommending that as advice, because I actually think that there are thoughtful ways to deal with that now. But I do think that I'm, I'm confident that I have been the victim of microaggressions. But maybe I just didn't see it or recognize it or moved on. I developed tactics and strategies to overcome it. And some of it, you know, some of it is, you know, it can get pretty intense in the OR. There's something about an operating room. It's a pressure cooker. Maybe I'll think I'll mention one from a long, long time ago that I can recall that really, really was very bothersome to me. I've thought of one example. So I had a patient who needed an urgent trach. You know, (laughs) as a fabulous otolaryngology residents, that has nothing to do with the pulse ox. It has to do with imminent risk of dying from a respiratory arrest because the airway, it's not the oxygenation, the lungs work fine, but at some point that airway is going to close up. And I had, again, a nurse, I was a young faculty member. I don't think I was a resident. I was a young faculty member and the charge nurse at, uh, at the night shift told me the faculty surgeon, that it was not an emergency um, because the pulse ox was fine. And I said, again, uh uh-uh, sorry, the the oxygenation is 100% until they stop breathing and then the oxygenation will be 0%. So this is an emergency. It's my call and I need an operating room. Right. <laughs> um, you know, because why would he not trust the surgeon on call that was responsible for that patient? Um, so, you know, there's been some of those. You know, there was a point at which people did not feel that I could be chair and people did not feel that I was cut out for the job. And I think that, um, and some of that is, uh, I I think, uh, falls in a category of implicit or unconscious bias and sort of standardized role models. And and a few people may have told me that I I could have, somebody could have told me, uh, not at my home institution, that I was the equal opportunity candidate. And, you know, I mean, and those things are Hurtful, but I think at, at the end of the day, I my approach, better or worse, it's probably an imperfect approach, has always been to rise above and to 
you know, like the, I, I made my case that the, the patient needed a trach. I ultimately was given the opportunity to serve as chair, which, you know, I'm very, very humbled and honored to have that role at Michigan. And I think that it's always been a fabulous department and continues to thrive under Dr. Prince's leadership. You know, some really important positive things. We, we rose to be the top Odo department in the country shortly after I, within a year of me stepping into the Dean's office and we recruited 22 faculty and grew research, grew a diverse cohort of faculty, learners, and staff. I mean, I, I think that we really thrived as a department. And so, so you know, I, I, I guess stay in the game, have that vision for, for, for your career, and don't let other people dissuade you from believing that you can really do it. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. I think my takeaways from that are like there are three things that were really actionable. I felt like the incremental leadership roles that you talked about, Dr. Bradford, like each small step on the way, like really building that experience and then constantly seeking feedback is another thing that we certainly try to do as residents, but in I feel like in leadership is super helpful. And then finding that mentorship seemed like the other thing that was very actionable. It seems like it's very challenging to be like the graceful self-promoter, like, but it feels like those three things of seeking that incremental leadership role, getting feedback and finding mentorship are kind of like active steps that you can take. And on behalf of like advocating for your career goals, um, even if talking about your accomplishments might feel challenging, at least you can speak to the experiences. Yeah. Well, I do think you know, uh, it's been said that um, there are gender differences in who applies for roles, that, that women are less likely to apply to a role if they don't meet every single qualification, and, and that's different for men. And I think that, you know, I think you don't have to have had every single experience to know how to handle a situation, a leadership situation. And so I do think those incremental leadership roles really do give people the benefit of when asked, how have you handled a leadership situation? Well, you've handled a a dilemma in a prior leadership role. And so I really think that that really is really, really important advice. Great. And then our next question for you was over your career and particularly in your new role as academy president, um, you see, we talked about all the transformation you've previously seen in our field. What do you think the future holds for women in otolaryngology and how can we get there? So I think the future is really, really bright uh, for women in otolaryngology. I think it's a, it continues to be a fabulous specialty that is really diverse. I always say surgical, medical, young, old, cool surgeries. I mean, I, and who we are as people. So I continue to think it is like the most fabulous specialty on the planet. I think we're making huge inroads um, in talking uh, about uh, diversity uh, and inclusion and equity and health equity. And so I really, uh, and that is not only going to be a fundraising goal, but it's also uh, going to be 
uh, a part of our strategic planning process. Stay tuned. So I think that the pandemic has been such a tragedy. And, and, you know, I know that all of us can't wait to be together in person once again, but I do think all the human tragedy and loss of life and illness and fear and isolation, you know, I can go on and on, but I, but I think it also highlighted health equity issues and outcomes with COVID infection. And so I, I do think the, the year and a half has also highlighted the challenges with racial injustice uh, in our country uh, and and health equity issues. And so, like I've also already mentioned, it's really important that the specialty mirror the communities. And I would say that's not sufficient. That's, That's a requirement. But then interact with the community, engage the community to um, really address health equity. And health equity is not just a primary care or a, you know, food insecurity. Health inequity actually happens in our specialty. So I think that I'm really honored to serve as president. Uh, A lot of really fun things are happening this year. It's It's going to be the 125th anniversary of the Academy of Allergology. And as you know, we have four platforms for fundraising, which are four really important platforms for me, education, wellness, diversity, equity, inclusion, and mentorship and leadership development. So those are the four areas that I've been focused on. And I think those are really important for our academy moving forward. One of those four, um, inclusive diversity, is really, really uh, an important Thing that we just need to achieve and work towards achieving in our specialty. Yeah, all four of those goals sound like goals that you've had throughout all of your incremental leadership roles. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I think they're all really important to me. And I think that they're, inter- they're, they're cross-cutting and they're not silos. So right. leadership development and mentorship pertains to education and it pertains to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's kind of fun how they all interact with one another. You've already sort of touched on this, Dr. Bradford, about talked a little bit about how um, there may be some differences in, in terms of men and women applying for jobs and seeking out roles that they may be qualified for. And I think some of the things that you already touched on with seeking out the leadership roles, feedback, and mentorship are all like actionable items for women listening in, but um, do you have other tips for women who may be facing imposter syndrome or feeling like either that they are wake up in the morning and are not sure how they got to the place that they're at today or how they get to the next place that they think they want to get to? So, so thank you. So I first learned about imposter syndrome. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, until I did ELAM, and I did ELAM, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. It's uh, for women. It's at Drexel University. I did it in 09. The first half, I was not in the running for chair, and then the second half, I was actually chair of the department because uh, I didn't make the short list at Michigan. Uh, some some may know that, some may not. But I, I would tell you, I mean, uh, imposter syndrome is very real. I mean, I there are moments there are many, many moments in my career, uh, even recently, where I think, oh my gosh, 
you know, they've made some terrible, terrible mistake. How could I possibly have the skills, you know, to do this? And I think that, and I say that because I think it's just so important to know it's just normal. You know, of course we have moments when we, it's really self-doubt. Imposter syndrome is self-doubt. One of the discussions I was on, you know, those are negative thoughts. And so just put them someplace and just say, put those thoughts away. Those are negative thoughts. And, and then, you know, realize that nobody is perfectly equipped to handle every challenge. And so how do we, how do we lead? How do we handle challenges? Well, we reach out, we ponder, we think, we reflect, we get advice. You know, um, there's lots of ways to overcome challenges, but every time you're faced with a difficult challenge, does that mean that you, you, you're an imposter in your role? And so those are negative self-doubt thoughts. We all have them. Um, at moments. And I think it's just important, you know, wake up every morning and I'm going to do the very, very best I can. I'm going to bring my best self to the job. I'm going to be positive. I'm going to focus on those things that matter. And I'm glad to hear that you think the things we chose for the Academy are what have historically mattered a lot to me. Um, And then just do your best. Nobody's perfect. Forgive yourself when you make mistakes. Um, we all make mistakes. Um, mistakes are part of uh, living and growing. It's one of the questions I think, you know, I asked the residents, but I think the point is, you know, is you don't really want to make mistakes and you never want to mistake, make a mistake that will cause patient harm. And so what you do is you rely on your community. You got to believe in yourself. I think that there is a part of this uh, where where you, you have to know yourself, but you also have to believe in yourself and have confidence uh, and, and do away with those negative thoughts. Uh, many know that my daughter was a collegiate gymnast, and, and I tell you, for, for collegiate-level gymnastics, which is very intense, um, you actually have to have positive thoughts. You have to not... Think You can never think, I'm not going to catch my hands on the bars on a major release, or you can't, you can never think I'm going to fall off the beam. You have to take that negative, those negative thoughts and put them away, acknowledge them and then put them away and think positively. And people have self-doubt. You can do it. (laughs) I think uh, with the negative thoughts, like one strategy that has come out of our women in a leadership course has been just having a readily available positive thought, just like a, something like you got this or like you deserve to be here or like something that you can quickly uh, find and access when those negative thoughts come your way. And the word for that, I'll give another word, appreciative inquiry. It's actually, in, in, and what's fun is that um, I just had before this uh, meeting uh, tonight, a meeting with the clinical chairs and we did a session on strategic planning. And then I, I said, we'd have two minutes per chair to talk about stories of success, just two minutes. And the faces and the positive energy in the room, just tell, and, and you can do that. You can do that as residents. You can do it as a faculty member. You can do it as a private, you know, practitioner, just say for two minutes, what positive things have happened today? What positive words? What positive interactions? Who have you helped? Did you 
you know, write somebody a nice card? Did you send a nice text? Did you make, did you help somebody struggling with hearing loss, cancer, whatever? And yeah, it's that, it's that positive, turn, turn negative energy into positive energy and, and, you know, and do it for yourself. You can journal about appreciative inquiry. Like what positive things did you do this past week that made a positive difference? And it makes you feel much better focusing on the positive. Well, we've been fortunate to have so many women co-residents and women faculty who are role models across our department. Um, That's not necessarily true for some of our peers at other institutions. And for people in that situation, do you have advice for um, seeking mentorship uh, for people who may not necessarily look like them? Right. So, so let's talk about both the mentorship piece and then the microaggression piece. The mentorship piece, so you, you can have more than one mentor. Mentorship can cross gender and ethnic, uh, you, know, ish, you know, you don't have to be the same background, the same gender, the same age. It can cross all those boundaries. But, you just, but the mentor really has to, has to be committed and, you know, just give good advice. So it has to be a trusted relationship. And so y- you can find those people um, at your home institution where, or your home practice. If you can't, you know, the academy is a great uh, way to find people. And, and again, don't, you know, a lot of people, um, as I have, you know, had leadership roles, have reached out to me to, to serve as a mentor for them. And I'm, you know, I do my, my best um, uh, to provide, you know, that, that advice you know, there's a, a million situations where I've been through something similar, and I think it can be helpful to just say, "Oh yeah, I, I dealt with this, and this is this is what I did," or this is maybe some things to think about. So you can ask. It's just like graceful. So, so ask for somebody to be your mentor, and then you know, I mean, it's pretty easy now because you can Zoom call. There's a lot of I, I text, you know, with a lot of people across the country, you know just, you know, this advice, that advice, I, you know, got an email today, you know, got a, got an email last week. And I always just, you know, give people my cell phone number and, you know, it, you know, I have to, you know, drive a few minutes home. And so again, it's just working it into your day. Um, uh, but just ask uh, people really, and, and people are very, very willing to help and support you. And I think that sometimes you need mentors for different things. So you might need a mentor, for, you know, getting your research lab funded. You might need a mentor if you choose uh, to have a family and raise children to say, how are you going <laughs> to figure all this stuff out? Like, and then, and then COVID happens and the, your kids are at home. Well, I don't know how to deal with that <laughs> because I didn't have to experience that. I've often said, I wonder what I would do, but, but I think the point is, is you got to find mentors for different aspects of your life and just ask, just ask, you know, don't be shy, just ask. The second part of our question was how to deal with microaggressions when nobody is defending yourself. Well, then you have to, and you just have to say, hey, I'm a physician. 
how I look or what I'm wearing is not relevant. And I would appreciate you calling me Dr. Bradford. And again, this is not my strong suit, but I think that you have to set boundaries of behaviors and words uh, that you will or won't tolerate, uh, whether it's a, a patient, a colleague, whomever it is. You know, I mean, there's a million examples, right? What people talk about in the hour. I mean, we've been there and it's like, what do you say? This conversation is making me really uncomfortable and I, I'm asking you to stop. Handling microaggressions on your own is not easy. And then some, you know, people have tons of unconscious bias. So who's the doctor? Who's the nurse? I mean, yeah, you know, that's happened my whole career. You know, people miss, miss, construe all of that. I think that we should be better at introducing ourselves so we don't have to guess. Hello, I'm the attending surgeon. I'm your attending doctor. This is my resident doctor. Um, And so I think we can actually help prevent some of those hierarchy things by just, let's just be, because patients would appreciate knowing who everybody is. So we should not even give them an opportunity to mix it up. And again, nothing's perfect in this space, but we've all, we've all seen it a million times, right? Yeah. The clarity of roles with introduction, I think is super helpful. I think one thing I've noticed is that if attendings introduce themselves by their first name, then it create it does sometimes create like a relationship of camaraderie with like the other staff and the patient. But if you're a woman or if you're small or any of those things are true, then you don't necessarily have that liberty because it may confuse patients and other people as to what your role is. You know, maybe I'm old fashioned. I'm pretty formal with patients. I mean, um, I'm Dr. Bradford and this is Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or whatever their gender pronoun is, you know, and even in notes, I actually prefer it to be pretty uh, formal. Now, On the other hand, I'm a big fan in the OR, in the operating room of lowering the hierarchy and being on a first name basis. Um, But I think that patients and families, I I do think that uh, people should know that we are a doctor and that who we are. And it's not because I think it's helpful that that is the degree, that is the role. And it is a formal, it's a professional relationship and always should be. So, so um, funny story, um, women's voices, female voices in the OR, nobody ever hears me. And so over the course of time, have you ever experienced this? Like you say something. Yes, and nobody, all the time. <laughs> all the time. And it's because, I think it's because the prevalence of female nurses in the operating room is pretty high. There's more women, female nurses than male nurses. Again, all inclusive, all equitable, but there just are. And so I do think that there's an aspect of tuning out the female pitched voice. Right. So I, you know, I'd say things three times. And then if I happen to be operating with a, a male resident, I'd just say, hey, can you ask, can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> and then they answer it the first time. I mean, it's just, it's hysterical, but it wasn't worth, nobody was intending to ignore me and I wasn't going to yell or shout. So at some point I just would ask, like, if I happened to be working with a male resident, I said, Hey, can you ask them to lower the bed or turn up, the, 
turn up the room temp or whatever. <laughs> you guys are laughing because it's happened to you. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. anecdote. But hopefully, hopefully that becomes um, a funny story of the past as, as we become more equitable and more diverse in all the different roles. We'll have more male nurses in the operating room. We'll have more female surgeons. Um, so hopefully that's a, a funny story to share about past times. Uh, Bradford, I was I was hoping to expand uh, or have you expand on one of the points you made earlier. I think PY mentioned um, the graceful self promoter, and you mentioned the example uh, of women, or sorry, at that time, men coming to you or coming to a, pos- a person in a position of power, saying, "I would like to be on this committee." And uh, that was the first time that I, I have heard that as well, at least in the field of otolaryngology. I was wondering if you could share some uh, tidbits like that or suggestions for, let's say, early career women otolaryngologists who want to get more involved in the academy or their specific subspecialty society, um, but don't know how and are facing these, quote unquote, mantles of men on all these panels and they want to be up there, um, but are not sure of the right first step. So the academy no longer allows mammals, so it has to be diverse, so that's great, uh, and that happened a few years ago. I really do think that the approach is nominate yourself for a committee and make your wishes known. If you don't get on the committee, you can audit the committee. So you sit on the committee, you record, so it's a great tactic. Let's say you want to be on X committee, you know, women in Odo, leadership development and mentorship. I'm just picking one out of the, out of the air. So, and let's say that you nominated yourself or, a, or asked a colleague to nominate you to serve on that committee for the academy, but you didn't make it that first year. Then, you're, then what you should do is go, go to that committee, meaning they're all open, and sit and listen and learn and participate as not a committee member, but a participant. And then you will eventually be asked to serve on that uh, committee. You know, it's so interesting um, how you get involved in things. And I think you have to pick and choose what you want to be involved with. And there's just a huge assortment of committees uh, for the academy doing really, really important work. So out of the gate, I would be strategic, say, what are you, where are you interested in serving for the academy? And those are the committees that you should try to get on. And I've told you the pathway. If you don't get on right away, then sit and audit, participate as a a guest, which you can do. But I think when you finally make it on that committee, then be an active participant and contributor show up at the national meeting, give lots of presentations, engage, engagement, engagement, engagement. The national meetings, when we can finally have that again, let's hope for 2021, is really the opportunity to network. Otolaryngology is really a small community and it's a fabulous community. So network, 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 show up, be present, go to the events, go to the poster sessions, talk to people that you've never met about their posters and their work, go to the exhibit hall, eat there at lunchtime. I mean, so it's just a fabulous opportunity to network. 
there are so many opportunities to get in, involved and engaged in the academy. You know, they, they have the, the we're not going to again probably do it in person, but the spring leadership forum, show up for that, show up for the board of governors, um, whatever, whatever it is that you do, um, choose what you do and, and, and really contribute. Uh, on the other hand, a not good strategy is to be, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. So just like sign up for everything, but then hardly ever participate. That is not the right strategy. Decide what you want to do and get really, really involved. So what did I do? I mean, it was a long time ago. I was really involved in the research form, which is what they used to call it at the academy. I led it for years and years, and that was really fun. I also, um, you know, got really involved in the core grant process uh, early on. And again, great way to get really, really, really engaged. And then obviously very much women in oligology. I got very, very engaged in that and, and a number of other things, home study course, you know, you name it, but take the opportunity to get involved. And you do that through these uh, committees and working groups is a lot of ways, you know, and, and you're part of section on residents and fellows. So that's a great avenue to get involved. I didn't even know you can audit a committee. So that's very helpful, practical advice. Thank you for that. Um, this is perhaps a, a, a side conversation or maybe a tangent, um, but I feel like many women and underrepresented minorities take a special interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, as do many male counterparts and Caucasian counterparts. Um, however, it is often the woman or the, and or the underrepresented minority who is asked to serve on diversity committees, and they end up devoting a lot of their time to these initiatives um, and perhaps less time to other parts of their career that are very important to them. Do you, do you have any advice for that? We spoke a little earlier about being the token person on, on an initiative or group um, or department. Do you have thoughts for the, the young uh, women, woman older laryngologist who might be overwhelmed with the amount of things that she is asked to do versus what she wants to do? I think saying yes is really important to the things that you're interested in. I think it's probably equally as important to say no to those things that you're really not interested in. And so I think you have to choose, you know, the platter of things that you're going to participate in. And so I think it is okay to say no. I mean, this is really known as the diversity tax. Um, and, and there is no question that um, I did play that role uh, early in my career. It's, it's funny, they at one point uh, at Michigan did offer like a $5,000, like a $5,000 award just to actually give you a small token of appreciation for all the committees. I mean, I was the, you name it, anything related to gender or, you know, harassment or equity or committee service, or I was on literally every, every committee. And so, so they did at, at one point, you know, they recognized the tax early on, this is, you know, a long time ago and, and gave one time like a $5,000, you know, bonus uh, in recognition for the work. But I do think my advice now is it's almost the same thing advice I gave 
uh, my children growing up, like don't be, you know, in 20 sports and be okay, but pick those two or three activities you want to do that you really, really love. Because A, if your kids are in, you know, again, we lead busy lives. If they're in 10 or 20 activities, we're all running around with like chickens with our heads cut off and it's, and you don't do anything very well. And so focus on those things that you have the passion for, and you know what those are, you know, not the things that are just a chore. And I've probably made lots, I've not been the best at, at not doing things. I've, I've tended to say yes. Um, I'll give you an example, writing book chapters. After writing many, many book chapters, I finally said, oh my gosh, Carol Bradford, stop writing book chapters. But if I were to ever write another book chapter, I would be sure to enlist a colleague or a resident to do that because that's yet another way to do it. And when I, when you get more and more opportunities to put on the platter, I've really taken the mindset, okay, if, I, if I'm already maxed out, if I'm as busy as I wish could possibly be or wish to be, when I add a new opportunity on, I'm going to be X. Well, then I have to take one on that platter of things that I'm doing. I've got to take one off. And there are other people to do those roles. I mean, you know, one of the ones that was hard for me to give up because I really loved it was being co-director of the Head Neck Oncology Program at Michigan. But I was, I had many, many other roles. And I think at this juncture, I was chair. And so I really did take the opportunity to pass along that opportunity and give somebody else a chance to lead. And it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's a great opportunity. You can't do it all. I've tried. You can't. <laughs> Sponsor um, for, for uh, women and men oligologists earlier in their career here at Michigan and now at Ohio State. I'm sure you'll continue to do that. And we both hope that we're there one day too, where we can um, have enough opportunity that we can share the wealth and uh, mentor others along the way. Go ahead, Pula. You know, gift to be given the opportunity to mentor and help other people. It's 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 actually one of the positive things about an academic career is that opportunity um, to help others be successful. And you know, I mentioned that it. You know, I I feel very blessed that that opportunity does happen not infrequently for me. And it's you know, I think you know um, we all learn in the mentorship relationships, we all learn um, from one another. And it's just, I think it's just really fun to do that. I just think it's its extraordinarily rewarding. Well, we've gained a lot from our talk today, Dr. Bradford. Uh, some of my takeaways from our discussion were kind of actionable items for young women in otolaryngology of seeking feedback, finding mentorship in terms of finding trusted relationships across different aspects of your career and life and seeking and third uh, finding incremental leadership roles and specifically in the academy we talked about one opportunity being finding the committees that you're interested in and even if you're not on the committee considering auditing them because it can be a way to get more engaged and it seemed like the sort of theme of all of these things was engagement of simply being present and uh, finding ways to be present in different environments to get more exposure experience and find ways for self-advocacy. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to leave um, as parting advice? One of my the, the pieces of advice I always give to the residents, you know, many times at resident graduation is, is that um, the days are long, uh, but the uh, years fly by. And so I think that, again, every day, do the right thing, make a positive difference. Uh, and it, it really is uh, worth it, um, but also take care of yourself. And I think you know how strongly I feel about wellness and care. We have to put on our own oxygen mask before we provide care for others. And, and you know, it's not easy um, in the pandemic to do, uh, you know, to go to the gyms and, you know, I played tennis and all of that. But, you know, in, in wellness um, means that if you're struggling, reach out, uh, but do work hard to achieve uh, work-life integration. It's never perfect, it, but, but as, like most things in life, you want to aspire to have work-life integration. Think about family, friends, colleagues, colleagues, you know, and, and I think we have to work hard not to have medicine and our important career equal our life. We, we all deserve a life that has meaning and purpose. But I think, you know, what a fabulous career. Every day uh, we do get an opportunity to make a positive difference. So uh, thank you, uh, Janice and PY. Um, uh, I'm so proud of you and, and the fabulous uh, careers uh, that are in front of you. And if I can ever be of help uh, to you or colleagues, just uh, do please reach out. So that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to our Power podcast. And thanks to Dr. Bradford for her candor and advice to us all. Tune in for our next episode on mentorship and sponsorship. Thanks again.